favor, y'all, and keep your finger right there in Genesis 3. Turn to Luke 24 real quick. You can take that with you. And I want to show you something. After Jesus, Jesus had risen from the dead, there were a couple of disciples who had gotten wind of what the women had been saying about him coming back to life, and uh, they were on a road to a village called Emmaus, and they started talking amongst themselves. And, and as they're talking amongst themselves, a man shows up to them. It's Jesus, but they don't recognize him. And, and Jesus speaks to them. What are you talking about? What's going on? They say, haven't you heard about what everybody is saying? And um, they said that some of our women are saying crazy things like he had been alive, been made alive, and that he had seen angels. And so Jesus takes a moment to begin speaking with these men who are confused, trying to make sense of what's going on. If you have your Bible, look at verse 25 of chapter 24. Jesus replies to them, and here's what he says. He says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then it says, and this is for our purposes here, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, for my part, whenever I read this passage, it makes me full of envy because I just imagine what it have been, would have been like to, to be a, a fly on the sandals of one of those men to hear what Jesus was saying Imagine what it would have been like to hear the written word of God interpreted to you by the eternal word of God, Jesus himself. Straight from the source, you would never have to listen to another sermon from people like me again. That would be enough. Notice that it says, though, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Question for you, when it says scriptures, which scriptures do we have in mind here? Now, you might think it's the whole Bible but you got to remember something, the New Testament, your Bible is divided into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the old story. The New T Old Testament is the story of what happens about Israel and the story before Jesus shows up on the scene. The New Testament is the story of what happens, it's the Gospels, Christ's life, the book of Acts, the epistles, so on and so forth. That part had not yet been written, so when Jesus says that he's going to interpret them to them everything that's in the scriptures concerning himself, He's talking about our Old Testament. The Old Testament points to Jesus. And so uh, I want to say you are on intellectually sound ground if you are interpreting the Bible by taking your cue from the guy who came back from the dead and rose to new life. And so when he says the scriptures point to him, you should believe him. In fact, Paul believes this. When he is in house arrest in Rome, uh, he sees the Jews. They come forward to him. He starts talking to them. It says he expounded to the Jews, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. In a sentence, the Old Testament points to Christ, Jesus. And so when you're reading the Old Testament, like I hope you are this year, if you're going through a devotional plan of some sort, 
You should be asking the question whether you're reading the Psalms or whether you're reading Genesis or other passages in the Old Testament. You should be asking, how does this get me to Jesus? How does this point me to Christ? I'll tell you, since we've been going through Genesis 1 through 3, you can turn back there now. Since we've been in Genesis 1 through 3, I have learned personally a lot. I shared a little bit about that with you last week. And one of the things that I've learned things that I hadn't seen before, was how many illusions and pointers there are from just Genesis 1 through 3 that get you to Jesus. And so, as I've been looking at chapter 3, there's just so much here that we can't do justice to it in in one morning. So we are going to bore down deep, and for the month of February, we're just going to go into chapter 3 of Genesis, because I want you to see how every single move that happens in the story, from the fall, to the blame game, to the curses that that come from the Lord himself, to the resolution of the whole story, and how the man and the woman are kicked out of the garden, how despite this terrible story, in each scene, it still gets us to Jesus Christ. I want you to see that. I want you to see that. And so Ray did an able job reading to us the first seven verses of chapter 3. I want to back up to chapter 2 and tell you about the command that God gave. We brushed over this last week. And if you understand the command, you'll understand what happens here in this scene. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. Let's dive in here. So this is after God has made the man. He shows up to the man and he gives him a command and here's what it says. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge and of good good and evil, you shall not eat from the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. By the way, pay close attention to the instructions and the wording that is given here because in a moment we are going to compare them with how the passage plays a telephone game from God to Adam, from Adam to Eve, and from Eve to the serpent. And so we'll compare what Eve says versus what God says right here. So hold on to this. You see that the instructions here is that the, the first part we, we pass over quickly is that God says that you can eat of every tree. There is a generosity that is here. There's a generosity, privilege, positive expression of God's goodness. He says, look at everything that you can have. Don't forget that part. God is a generous God. I like the word from Kenneth Matthews that says, freedom has no meaning without prohibition. The boundary for Adam is but one tree. And as we know, there is one tree that they were not supposed to eat of, and that is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so the warning label came with, if you eat this, you're going to die. It's an interesting thought to think about. If Adam would have never eaten of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, by the way, um, in our depictions, it's always an apple. This is just a pet peeve of mine. It says fruit. Just let's get it right. Um, Just a pet peeve. What if Adam had never eaten of the tree of knowledge and of good and evil? For many of us, maybe we think he would have been immortal. He would have never died. John Calvin speaks to this, and he speculated that if he didn't sin, what actually might have happened would have been that his earthly life truly would have been still temporal, and yet he would have passed into heaven without death. 
and without injury, thereby receiving eternal life. So what theologians have tried to do is go, only God is immortal. He's God. But what happens to Adam if he never sins? And so what Calvin says is it's something like Elijah's. You know the Elijah's story where he's taken in a chariot and he never dies and he's taken up into heaven. Well, it's interesting to wrestle through these things and go, what would have happened if this never happened, if the dominoes fell a different way? The truth is we're just not told exactly, but here's what we do know. That if Adam would not have sinned, it would have not turned out the way it did. It would have not turned out the way you see in Genesis 5. Where Adam, after getting 930 years of life, he dies. When you read chapter 5, oh, I know, that part with the genealogies that we all like to pass over because they're boring. There's something stark that happens. This person lives this long, and then they die. This person lives this long, and they die. It's right in your face to tell you that when man does things his way, it ends in destruction. And that comes from not following the command that is here. And so... I gave you one question. Let me ask you another question. Doesn't the Bible say that we should know right from wrong? I've wrestled with this myself. This is a famous story. We all know that they're not supposed to eat of this tree of knowledge and good good and evil. But aren't we supposed to know our right hand from our left? Aren't we supposed to know up from down? Aren't we supposed to know right from wrong? So what is God doing? Is he saying he doesn't want us to be moral? He wants us to remain in ignorance. Is he saying that he wants the first parents to be, to not have a conscience. Is that what is going on here? That doesn't sound like a fair and loving God that would say, I'm not going to give you morals and then I'm going to give you a choice between choosing right and wrong. Do you see the problem here? Do you see how you could read this very cynically if you wanted to? Unless that's really what's going on. I believe that the issue here was not whether a God wanted his Original, the original couple to know right from wrong, it all had to do with the way they went about it. Kent Hughes in his commentary says it really well. He says, the temptation to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil was to seek wisdom without reference to the word of God. It was an act of moral autonomy without God. Deciding what is right without reference to God's revealed will. Will. The question was not whether or not God wanted them to know right from wrong. The question was whether they would sidestep God in their way to get there, to take matters into their own hand, to gain self-understanding separate from the Lord. So by placing the tree of knowledge of good and evil, why is it there? Christians throughout the centuries have said, it is there to present the original couple with a choice. That either they will serve the Lord with complete devotion and obedience, or they will sing Frank Sinatra's song, I stood tall and I did it my way. One way or the other, you have to choose. The song is a song, by the way, that is sung at many secular funerals. And so the command is given, you can have all of this, but don't eat this. You must be obedient or choose, choose to follow me or, cho- or choose not. Now we have the serpent that enters into our story. Everything has been good up until this point. There's no shame. There's innocence. There's love between the original couple. Then the serpent comes onto the scene. There was a serpent that was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Okay, another trivia question. Who's the serpent? Don't answer. Just think about it. 
Who is the serpent? I see some of you already mouthing it already to me to let me know. Here's what we're told. Look at the verse. It says he was created by God. That, the, he, that he was the craftiest of God's creatures of all that he had made. So whoever this serpent is, he's not autonomous. He's not independent. He is the Lord's. And so this rules out the idea that God and the evil one are on equal footing, kind of yin and yang or black and white or uh, the image that has been coming to my head as silly as it is, perhaps, if you've ever seen the Emperor's New Groove and you've, you know Kronk, the, the bodyguard, he's, he's always wrestling with on the right side or our left side, the devil on the one side and you've got the angel on the other side trying to speak reason or to speak a word of wickedness. Well, I think this is a humorous example. You can please get that down quickly. For many of us, I think that we find ourselves doing the very same thing, is that we can tend to think of God as being on equal footing as the devil, and they're, like, they're, they're, they're doing an arm wrestling match. Maybe you've seen that picture. I know I've seen that before. And yet the Bible doesn't let you do that. The serpent is God's serpent. The devil is God's devil. Another thing, you can see where I'm going with this and how I interpret who this serpent is, is that if you were here a few weeks ago, I told you about a couple of my professors, how I would go to my Old Testament graduate school class and I would hear my Old Testament professor and say, stay in the text. Focus on what is right in front of you. Don't go to other passages. Stay right here. See that the passage says nothing about the certain serpent being the devil or Satan. It says nothing about the fall of Lucifer and a third of the angels being cast down. That's not in Moses' head when he writes. So don't say so. Do you see any of that in the first three chapters here? I don't, I don't think we've covered that yet. And so he would say, surely that's not there. Don't force the text to say something it doesn't. When I told you my theology professor said, You've got to read the Bible as a complete unit from Genesis all, to, all the way to Revelation. And the Bible says more about itself as the story progresses. So here's what I would like you to consider. The Bible is a treasure. You should see how unified it is. In my Bible here, there's, there's cross-references. Maybe look at your Bible. Maybe you have some cross-references as well. What are, there, what are they there for? to let you know that there's an illusion or there's a quotation. The Bible has something else to say elsewhere about what is happening right here. One gentleman, we'll put another picture up on the screen, uh, did, a, uh, did a study and uh, he found over 64,000 cross-references. This is a scaled-down version of it, of how the New Testament quotes the Old Testament or how the Old Testament refers to itself in different places. You can see just by this picture, these, each of these strands, and the picture on the screen doesn't do full justice to it, the real version either. But what a thought to think that this represents over 64,000 times that the Bible refers to itself somewhere else, and how it's so interwoven, an intricacy that exists over 1,600 years by at least about of 40 different authors I think is a witness and a testimony to the reality that there is one divine author who has inspired this book, who stands behind the whole thing. 
And I want you to now consider how one of those lines goes from Genesis all the way to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. And here is the reason Christians have believed what they have believed about the identity of the serpent. Revelation 12 says this. Despite my Old Testament professor. Now war arose in heaven, and Michael and his angels were fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. You've heard me say this before, I will say it again. You will be on sure footing when you let Scripture interpret Scripture. Let the Bible speak to itself. Who is the serpent in our passage this morning? John tells us in Revelation that it is that that devil himself, Satan. And so we have the tree, the serpent... Now we have the dialogue with the woman, and I want you to watch how the tactics work of this crafty serpent with his forked tongue. He says these words, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? He goes after the woman, he doesn't go after the man. He goes after the woman who heard the second hand. On top of that, he doesn't contradict God's word outright, but he subtly questions Is that really what he said? He sows a seed of doubt. Even worse, notice how he refers to God right here. From the beginning of chapter 2, we had been getting a description of God this way, that it was the Lord God. When you see capital L-O-R-D, that is the covenant name for God, Yahweh, representing his, his, his personal nature of being the covenant redeemer for his people. But on The tongue of the serpent, it is just God. And you'll notice, it is a tip of the hat that things are about to go awry because we don't get the Lord God description until he shows up in the garden himself in verse 8. Something is about to go wrong here. And so the woman replies, and this is where we compare. She replies and she says, we may eat of the tree, of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So I'm going to ask you now, we've now read the command, we've now read what Eve said, is that an accurate representation of what the Lord commanded? I would say no. I would follow again Kent Hughes here. I love the way he characterizes Eve's words. He says, Eve diminished, she added, And she softened God's word. She diminished, added, and softened the command. You notice the first thing that she does is she diminishes the generosity of God. God had said, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. But in the words of Eve, she says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. There's no mention of every. There's there's a diminishing of the fact that God gave them everything else to have. Diminishing of his generosity. She adds to God's word. God says, you will surely die if you eat of this. And she says, don't even touch it. Uh, To Eve's credit, 
She's probably just wanting to emphasize or deferring to the command of wanting to uphold the seriousness of the command. But what she still does is she puts words in the mouth of God. Let this be a warning for us never to do that. Never put words in the mouth of God. To be careful to accurately represent what he says. I believe that when we, we are in dangerous territory, when we add to God's word by putting up a standard that goes beyond what he has set up, we develop a standard of self-righteousness for ourselves that God never intended. She diminishes, she adds, but she softens also the word of God. Those last words from God's command was strong. For in the day you eat it, you shall surely die. And the commentators point out that Eve simply just says, lest you die. Her words fail to capture the urgency of the consequences for getting it wrong. Don't be surprised that if you diminish God's statements of command and the consequences that come from not obeying, that it doesn't go well for you. Failure of disobedience. She diminishes, she adds, she softens. And now she is right where the serpent wants her. She has been primed for the knockout punch. And here we get an outright contradiction. Here's what the devil says. He says, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You won't die. God is wrong. Your eyes will be opened. You'll be enlightened. You'll know good and evil. You'll possess what only God possesses. And so Matthews has said, the serpent spoke only about, the, about what she would gain, and he failed to mention what she would lose. And so the temptation to be like God, and to be autonomous, was enough. The rod was cast the lure was set, Eve took the bait of temptation, and the hook went right into her heart. You notice how the narrative begins to speed up. It gets rapid all of a sudden. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food. She delighted it. It was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she took of the fruit, and she ate. It happens that fast. Another question for you. We haven't mentioned Adam in all of this. Where is he? Look at the next part of the verse, verse 6. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, who was with her, and he ate. It seems that Adam had been present the whole time. He had stood by while this happened. If you want further evidence of this, you can't see it in your English, but the original language points to the reality that when the serpent says, you shall not die, your eyes will be open, the you there is not singular, just Eve. The you there is a plural directed at both Adam and Eve. Adam was there. So here's the point. Eve, yes, was deceived, but Adam full on rebelled. He was passive, and instead of standing up against the serpent, instead of correcting his wife and protecting her, he rebelled against God, and he cowered. He was passive. Standing on the truth of God, he took matters into his own hands. Let me say this about this passage, because I've seen this passage get manipulated in all sorts of ways. While we're here, uh, gentlemen, let us be careful not to use the example of Eve here and then therefore say, 
Because Eve did this, all women, therefore, are gullible. Eve was deceived, yes, but that does not mean that all females are gullible. The Bible does not teach that, just so that you know. And doesn't experience also prove this too? Last time I checked, last time I checked, uh, women don't possess a monopoly on cults or conspiracy theories. Consider that. How should we see this rightly, though? I, I think this way. Husbands, may we never abdicate our responsibility, the authority that God has given us in our homes, to keep a vigilant eye for the sake of our families. And the devil hates the home. You are seeing that all over this culture right now. John 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Oh, husbands and fathers, let us not stand idly by and let the devil take a foothold in our home. The consequences are disastrous, as they are here. So our story ends this morning in a depressing place. What the devil said was partially true. Their eyes were opened, but immediately they saw that they were exposed. The, first, the last verse of chapter 2 said that they were naked and unashamed. But the last verse of chapter, uh, of, of verse 7 of our part of the story in this scene is that they realized that they were naked and therefore they were ashamed. There was a bookend here from unashamed to shame. And once again, I love how Hughes sums it all up. Everything was upside down. Eve followed the snake. Adam followed Eve, and no one followed God. This is the origin story of how, the famous origin story of how sin enters the world and how humanity fell. I've known this story since I was a little boy, um, but I've loved coming back to it because it's made me think about it in ways that I hadn't thought before or had forgotten to. There's been a couple things that have just been in my mind. Two piercing questions from this passage that I want to give to you now and ask you to think about as we, as we end our time together. Here's the first question. I can't help but wonder, if Adam and Eve failed, what hope do I have? These were two people who were in the garden, originally sinless. Verse 8 oh, that we'll see next week, it's a clue in that God had an personal, intimate relationship walking in the garden with them. If they had that and they fell, what a hope do you and I have that we're not going to fall to sin ourselves? They weren't corrupted, but we were born into corruption and sin. What hope do we have? Paul says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But man, I know how often I fail at that. We know Paul, and yet we don't resist. We give in to our pet sins. We say we won't fall Pray to that temptation. We all, each one of us in this room, have our respectable sins. Like worry and comparison and gossip and grumble and overwork. All of us, you and me. And yet one of the key messages of this creation story that we have come back to time and time again is that there is no such thing as a person who is autonomous because every person has been created by God himself. And that is a tough pill for us to swallow when we want to do it our own way. This is where Eve tempted, 
was tempted. This is where Adam rebelled. This is where you and I fail as well. And yet there wasn't, well, there was one here in our story. Come on, it's so easy. There was one who didn't fall prey to the temptation. Go to Matthew 4 and you read the story about Jesus. After, after he has been baptized, the spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And here's what it says. After 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered with scripture, it is, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The devil took, takes him up to the holy city, sits him on the pinnacle of the temple. He says to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone, a stone. And Jesus answers, with scripture again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Final time, the devil takes him up onto a mountain. He shows him the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he says, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written a third time. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Unlike Eve, the eternal word of God resisted the devil by referring to his own written word of God. Is it possible that one of the reasons that you fall prey and I fall prey to our sin so often is that, man, I've been wrestling with this this week. Especially when you're the preacher. You know the passage that, that you're going to be preaching out of. And you go, okay, you know what it says. Are you actually doing it yourself, Aaron? There, there is so easily a disconnect, isn't it true, between what we know what is true and then like actually going, okay, how does this work in my marriage? Or how does this work in my daily life or all the things that I go through? We know what is true and yet we don't do it. I wonder if it's really because we have not hidden God's word in our heart so that we would not sin against him. For some of us in here, you may have been in church for a long period of time. You are vaguely familiar with a lot of things about the Christian faith, but you have not hid God's word in your heart, made it precious to you, gotten it into your bloodstream, and so you only have got those one, two, three arrows when the devil comes your way, the enemy comes your way to fire off. Man, you got John 3.16 like the back of your hand. That's all you got. You don't have anything else. John 3.16. John 3.16. You, you, you don't have the, the wealth of everything else that the scriptures possess to give to you. The scriptures are sufficient. Don't they speak to every aspect of our lives? Wouldn't we want to make them a treasure? Keep them on our mouths? Write them on our walls? Keep it in front of our eyes? Let us follow the example of Christ. When we respond to the things that we are tempted with with words like this, it is written. Unlike the first man and the woman who sought moral autonomy, the eternal son did not, did not seek autonomy separate from the will of his own father. He did not fall prey to the temptation of rule that came from the prince of the power of this era, of the air. He would not be deferred from his mission to go to a Roman cross to redeem those who had become corrupted by sin, the sin that Adam and Eve brought into this world. You've heard me say before, that Jesus understands our temptations better than we do. 
Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, hear me, I know this is familiar for some of us, but hear it again, who in every respect was tempted like we are, and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I think it was Dane Ortland's book that first got through to me on this passage. This book, Gentle and Lowly, where he says, Jesus understands your temptations better than you do, because unlike you, he experienced those temptations all the way to the end because he resisted them all the way to the end. He knows the strength, hear me, of every single temptation that you may be going through right now because he walked on this earth and he resisted all the way through to the end. He can relate to you. Isn't that the kind of God that you would want to speak to? Cast your burdens upon? Call out to him when you resist the devil and know he will actually flee from you because of the power that's within and so you who have fallen prey, yet again, to the schemes of the evil one with that forked tongue, that ancient dragon, the serpent, that says, it won't really hurt that bad, or no one will know, or you've given in to this before, what will it hurt to give in to it again? Or you deserve it after everything you've been through. Or your church leaders, they don't care about you. Or, if people knew what was going on in your life, they would reject you. Or, to assume the worst in others' motives, the temptation of the pride of unforgiveness, the hunger for the acceptance of man and his opinions, or that of God's. You take all of those lies and you expose them with the truth of God's word. And the power to resist the devil this morning will not be found from within you, but will be found in the resurrection power that comes only from Jesus Christ. There is a reason why we say the name of Jesus. Because of the name that is above every single name. And when you call out on the name of Jesus, the power that exists within that name gives you the ability to stand firm. Not merely resist the devil. Let us not resist the devil merely. But let us also see what Christ offers in place that is so much better. This idea of resisting the devil, though, is it's part and parcel with the second question that I wanted to ask you this morning. So if the first question was, what chance do I have if Adam and Eve fail? And the answer is, you have the power of Jesus Christ living within you, and you have the name that is above every single name that you believe in. Another question that goes right with this, though, is, do you and I really live our life as if a spiritual battle is actually going on? Do I, as a 21st century Western person in a culture that tends not to believe in miracles but just in what is material, do I actually believe in how I live, that there is a real enemy out there who cannot stand me? I think of the words of that 19th century French philosopher, Charles Baudelaire, that says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled off was to get us to believe that he doesn't exist. I'll say it again. The greatest trick the, ever, the devil ever pulled was to get us to believe that he doesn't exist. If you look at your life over the last week, did you live in such a way 
that went. I was mindful of the spiritual battle that was taking place. If you forgot, let me remind you. Ephesians 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Maybe, maybe, maybe the source of your anxiousness and fear has a spiritual component to it. I will tell you that for my part, for our elders' part, over the last three weeks, we knew that we were going to be talking about sensitive topics like gender identity and talking about biblical marriage. I will tell you that, that for all of us, we've been going like this in the last two, three weeks going, all right, where's it going to come from? Because we know that if we're doing the right thing that the Lord has called us to do, there will be a response from the evil one who hates us. He hates this church. He hates the good things that are happening here. He hates the fact that almost 40, uh, 40 young people married with their kids are going to show up and they're going to get discipled uh, in marriage, in small groups. That's going to happen here on Tuesday. And he wants to sow seeds of division in those marriages before Tuesday even happens. That's how the devil rolls. You and I live in such a way that we are fighting the good fight and being ready for a devil who wants to come after us. Let us be watchful. We should be watchful in this church, in our personal lives in these days. And yet it is not a fight that is without hope. We serve the one who is victorious over the grave. We serve the one who has come back to life, has defeated the grave, our sin, and the devil himself. Jesus Christ, who through his, though his heel was bruised, the head of the serpent was crushed by him. But that's a sermon for another week. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Bethesda Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can find us online by visiting our website at www.bethesdahuron.com or you can find us on Facebook and YouTube at Bethesda Huron.